You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Well, thank you very much. It's great to uh, be with you guys. Uh, I am 50 years into my journey through life. Probably all of us here this morning, we would all agree that during the course of a typical 70, 80, 90 year life, there usually comes a point, a moment. Now, granted, this moment may only last for five minutes of your life, but at least for those five minutes, you and I ask this question, am I alive for a reason? I can see, talk, think, feel, I can have fun, but is there more to life than this? Is there any purpose to life? For at least those five minutes, we ask, why am I here? I mean, for that matter, why is anything here? How come there's something rather than nothing? How did anything begin to exist? Why is there a universe with me living in it? I mean, why is there a planet with me living on it? You could take your phone right now, you could come up here, you could show me some photos of your life, but once you've added our photographs together, does it mean anything? I mean, do our lives amount to anything in the greater scheme of things, or are we really just meaningless bags of chemicals? I mean, is life ultimately pointless? And as we are thinking about this huge question for those five minutes, along comes a 33-year-old man. Now, he is by far the most famous person who has ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth. And as we're thinking about this question, he looks you and me straight in the eye this morning and says, you are not an accident. You're supposed to be here. Jesus says you're worth something. Jesus says that there really is a loving God. A loving God who always planned that one day you would exist. And now he has deliberately made you on purpose in the hope of having a wonderful relationship with you. A relationship that's good for this life. But Jesus says this relationship is so good it actually goes on into the next life into a place where you'll never be bored. This is a place where every day is better than the one before. This is a place where you'll be filled and thrilled to the max. Jesus says that you are that loved by God. Now, that's quite a claim. But can it be trusted? Personally, folks, I had my doubts. Uh, I didn't go to church. Um... I didn't have any friends who went to church, so I wasn't looking for God. Now, if somebody had stopped me on a Saturday morning in the high street with a clipboard and a pen and said, oh, hello, Uh, we're just stopping members of the general public this morning, asking this question, do you believe in God? I probably would have answered yes. They would have said, thank you very much. Second question, if yes, why do you believe in God? I probably would have said, Uh, I don't know. But if they had pressed me for an answer, probably eventually I would have said something like this. I would have said something like, well, on television, scientists say that the universe began to exist 13.7 billion years ago. 
and they say that that was the beginning of space, time, matter, and energy. So, given a choice between either space, time, matter, and energy coming to existence out of nothing for absolutely no reason at all, or space, time, matter, and energy coming into existence for a reason, there's some sort of first cause given that choice, I'd bet on the first cause. So, yeah, I suppose that's why I believe in God. If they then said, okay, final question this morning, what do you think of Christianity? I would probably have come up with a few questions and objections, which coincidentally are the same questions that get explored on the Alpha course. In summary, folks, I didn't want to believe a lot of nonsense. I did a history degree at university, and then I became a reporter for the Times newspaper in London. And then I became a BBC radio presenter, and then eventually I became a television presenter. And in that role, I met quite a large number of rich and often very successful people. But many of those people told me that when you've got it all, when you've got everything that you ever wanted, they said it's not as satisfying as you always think it will be. So through my working life, I discovered that actually there are lots of people who are left feeling, hmm, there must be more to life than this. Okay, well, what happened to me? Well, like I said, I didn't go to church, uh, but I had this one friend, and they invited me, well, they introduced me, actually, to a whole load of people who were part of Wimbledon Baptist Church. These people that I met, they had a sense of peace that wasn't dependent on their circumstances. It was like they didn't need their life to be going well in order for them to have this peace. Now, why was that appealing to me? Was it perhaps because I was unhappy at the time? Well, no, because looking back, I was very happy at the time. But these people had got something that I hadn't got. And after a while, I began to wonder, you know, what is it that they've got? What is this thing? I mean, what did Jesus really say and do? One day, I was sitting in my car. I just parked my car. I had a red Volkswagen at the time. I parked this car, and uh, I had got hold of a copy of the Bible. And so, for the first time in my life, I opened the Bible. And I started to read from one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus. I only read for about 10 minutes. But those 10 minutes were enough to make me realize that the Jesus who's in the Bible is much more appealing, much more exciting than I could possibly have ever imagined. And as I went back, I read a bit more in the following weeks and months, I discovered that the attractive thing about Christianity is a person. It is the person of Christ. When I read his words, as I saw his character, as I heard his teaching, what well, listening to Jesus was like drinking a glass of cool, clear, clean water on a hot, sunny day. People just wanted to be with him. They knew that he was for real. 
I mean, his integrity, his honesty. And I thought to myself, you know, if, if God really came to earth as a man, I would expect to be impacted by his teaching, by the reports of his miracles, by his moral beauty. I would expect there to be a unique authenticity about him. And that was exactly what I found. I found that in the New Testament part of the Bible, Jesus actually offers you and me eternal life. And when people met Jesus, what overwhelmed them about him was his compassion and his humility. He came for you and me. Jesus was an amazingly warm-hearted person. He truly loved people. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. He said, if you're hungry, I am the bread of life. Jesus offers us what he called it abundant life or life to the full. And if we do follow him, he promises, hey, I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And so, I saw right now, you and I, we can come to Christ. Christ who said, I am the light of the world. Christ who said, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, even if they die, they'll live. Christ who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Christ who predicted that he would be killed, but he also predicted that three days after that, he'd sort of vindicate, back up all of his amazing claims by physically rising from the dead. Now, when I was working for the Times in London, when I was working for the BBC, at both, in both of those jobs, I was trained to be cynical. I was trained to doubt and to disbelieve everything and everyone. I was taught by some of the best and brightest minds in our country how to tear apart every single source that even claims to be telling the truth. But nevertheless, I became convinced by the historical evidence that Jesus of Nazareth must have risen physically from the dead and that his resurrection gives real credibility to all of his amazing claims. So why did Jesus come? Or we could ask, why do so many people say that he is the way into a relationship with God? Well, I wonder at this point whether you could do me a small favor. I'd like to ask for a show of hands. I'd like you to vote on something. This is just a bit of fun. Is that okay? All right. So just for a moment, uh, I'd like you, please, whether, ask you whether you could help me out. Could you please raise your hand if you think that I have got a criminal record. Could you please raise your hands? One hand at the back, straight up, straight away. Another lady over here, absolutely sure. Couple over there, man at the back. Okay, it's a few hands up. Thank you, hands down, thank you. And now, hands down. Could you please raise your hand if you think that I have not got a criminal record? Could you please raise your hands? Oh, okay, uh, the majority. Okay, well, thank you very much. Hands down, thank you. F folks, the truth is uh, that actually... I have got a criminal record. Yeah, oh, it's a gasp from a lady in the front. Um, <laughs> extraordinary. Uh, yeah, so the truth is that uh, on the 14th of November, 1988, I was arrested for alarm, 
distress and a willful obstruction of a highway. I can see you're interested. I, I mean, I will tell you. I will tell you about. I will tell you about my crime. But but what was really quite exciting, what was quite exhilarating, was the manner of my arrest, the way that I was arrested. I was arrested at the end of a police chase. I was on. I was on foot, and I was running away from the scene of my crime. But the police were in a police car, so they had their lights flashing, the sirens blaring. So because I'd run across these two roads, they're in the car. I think. If I can get away from the car, so I jump over this fence, I start to run uphill through this muddy field, but of course the police car screeches to a halt, and so they jump over the fence, the coppers fly out the back of this car, they jump up, so now I'm running as fast as I can up this muddy field, and then the policemen, they're running as fast as I can, so I run as fast as I can, they run as I'm in a police chase. So they run as far, I, and I can hear the quicker these two coppers getting closer and closer and closer. And then eventually he does this excellent rugby tackle on me from behind. And I go bang, face down in the mud. I'm lying there, face down in the mud. And I'm thinking to myself, that was cool. <laughs> I mean, they must practice that, don't you think? For one minute I'm at full speed, the next bang, face down in the mud. And so I'm lying there in the mud. And, of course, like, like you would, I'm, I'm rifling through all these cop TV shows that I've watched growing up. And as you know, on telly, uh, the first thing that happens when you get arrested is that the policeman says, you're Nick, Sonny Jim. Do you know? He actually said that. <laughs> I was so chuffed. So I, I stood up and I said, look, officer, you know, I've really got to thank you. That's really quite exciting. I mean, the... The, the lights, the sirens, the chase, the rugby tag. I said, I'm from Wimbledon. This is really quite exhilarating. <laughs> and next, as I'm sure you know, what, ha- what happens next on telly when you get arrested is that the policeman puts your arm up your back like this. He did that as well. So he takes me off to the squad car. And as you know, when the arrested person is put in the back of the police car, as you're getting into the back of the car, as, as you get into the back of the car, one of the policemen puts their hand on your head and they push you down as if you've never got into the back seat of a car ever before. Pushes you down. So I go down the station and I empty out my pockets and I'm thrown in the cells and I'm arrested. Now it might be that by this stage there's one or two of you and you're curious to know what was the alarm? What was the distress? What was the willful obstruction of a highway? Well, I have to tell you that I was a student at the time. And what had happened was I, I'd gone home to this college where I lived at the time, and as I was just going home, there was this group of about 20 of my mates, and they had got hold of quite a large felled tree. And they were moving this tree to block the entrance to a rival, and in our opinion, inferior college. And so I naturally joined in, because <laughs> at, at that stage in my life, at that stage in my life, I genuinely thought that this other college was of no public benefit to anyone anyway, so I thought it was a good idea to block access so that nobody could come in or out. At that time, that's what I thought. And so I joined in. And so the thing was, when the flashing blue lights appear in the distance, all my mates scarper. And I remember thinking, no, you don't need to run away. I mean, we're students. This is obviously a student prank. I mean, the police are reasonable people. I'm from Wimbledon. I'll be able to reason with these people. <laughs> but no, when the police car got really close, I thought, no, probably, probably this is wrong. Probably this will turn out to be alarm, distress, and a willful obstruction of a highway. And so because I was the last to leave the scene of my crime, uh, I was also the easiest to catch. But that wasn't my first misdemeanor. It was just like my first publicly recorded misdemeanor. Because the truth is, folks, by this stage of my life, there were loads.
there's the times when either through my thoughts or my words or my deeds, I mean, the God who really exists, he would know all about all the times when I knew what the right thing to do was, but I didn't do it. All the times when, well, I've just taken the gifts of food, fun, friends, falling in love for granted. And the times when I've kind of eased the gift giver to the margins of my life, just taking the gift of life for granted. And I went back to Wimbledon Baptist Church, and one night, the pastor, Norman Moss, he actually performed on stage a dramatic sketch that I'd just like to reenact, if I may, uh, for you now. And it was something that helped me understand how in Christianity the dilemma I just mentioned is solved. So, first of all, Norman puts this verse from the Bible on the screen. He says, I want to see if this morning I can explain and illustrate to you this verse. And then he invites three members of the congregation. They don't know they're going to be chosen. He literally pulls them out, right? So don't worry, I won't do it. I won't won't actually give the volunteers. So you can just rest these in. Okay, don't worry. Uh, So each one of these three volunteers, they stand on a chair, three different chairs. So here comes the first one. Norman's wandering off into the congregation, gets somebody. This person comes to stand on this chair. Norman narrates his own sketch. He says, this person's going to play the part of God, the Father. And at the beginning, God creates gravity, electromagnetism, matter, antimatter, neutrons, electrons. God brings space-time, matter, and energy into existence at a point in the finite past. God creates our finely tuned universe, and then God creates life, Norman says. And then God creates human beings, eventually. And he's off again. He's off to a different part of the congregation. He's going to get somebody else. This person's going to play the part of womankind. Humanity, mankind. And man stands on his chair right next to God the Father. The two of them have this massive hug. And at this point in Norman's sketch, everything is going really well. But then sadly what happens next in Norman's sketch is that man on this chair, he becomes so preoccupied with all the gifts that he's been given. It's almost as if he kind of forgets where the gifts have come from. In fact, he turns his back on the gift giver. Before you know it, he's got down off his chair and he's wandering off in this direction. And can I just say that I can relate to this? I can sympathize with this because I think I would say, well, yeah, I mean, if God really did make the oxygen that I'm breathing, I mean, if God really did make the planet that I'm standing on, well, I suppose you're right. God probably should be number one in my life. But for so many reasons, he's not. I mean, not really, but God's kind of on my radar somewhere. By this stage in Norman's sketch, man has got back on his chair. But he's now quite a long way away from God the Father over there on that chair. And Norman says, look, the thing is, Norman says, that all of us, the Bible says, are on this chair. That all of us have sinned. And now we fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God's over there in that chair. We're on this chair. And Noah says, the problem is that if we die on this chair, we won't be in heaven when we die because heaven's all the way over there. We're separated from heaven. We're looking at an eternal death, an eternal separation. In fact, the Bible says that the result or the wages of sin is death. We are facing, Noah says, 
if we die on this chair, we are facing the death penalty. He says, this is the bad news. This is the bad news. But then he gets all excited. His face lights up, and he scampers back across the stage. And he says, but the good news is that God over here on this chair is so loving that when he sees you and me in this terrible predicament over there on that chair, he sends for his son to come into the world. And he's off for the third and final time. He gets a third volunteer. This person plays the part of Jesus. And so Jesus comes to stand on a chair in between God, over there on that chair, and man. Jesus holds his arms out like so. And so Norman explains that Jesus' name actually means God saves. And the reason why Jesus is such a big deal is because he takes the death penalty at the age of 33 when he dies on the cross. The death penalty, well, that was what was coming to you. We were facing the death penalty. Jesus dies in the place of all who trust in him as a substitute instead of us. He solves the problem. As it were, he becomes a bridge, like a way back to God as he dies on the cross. And so Norman's sketch ends memorably with man over here on this chair making the most of the opportunity. He sees the bridge. He looks at Jesus. And man gets off his chair. He holds on to Jesus. They're on the same chair. He's holding on to Jesus. He's going by the cross, through the cross. And then eventually he gets back onto the same chair as God the Father. God and man are reunited. They have this massive hug and the congregation erupts in cheers and applause and laughter. And Norman spins around and says, that's the point of this verse. That's the point of Christianity. This is why Jesus came. This is how Jesus is the way back into a relationship with God. That God so loved you over there on that chair. That he gave his only son to die on the cross. So that if if you believe in him, you won't die on this chair. You won't perish on this chair. No, you, through believing in Jesus, you can go back and you can be reunited With God, your heavenly Father, you can have that eternal, lasting sense of peace. And it's amazing to think that Jesus volunteered for this rescue mission. Jesus apparently had some sort of understanding of how he would die. So, as we know, the process began with a Roman flagellum used by two Roman lictors who whipped his back before the crucifixion. And then after that, of course, there was the crown of thorns, which was placed down upon his head. Then after that, three Roman nails driven into his hands and his feet. And so as Jesus died, in a sense, he was building a bridge. I mean, he was making a connection between heaven and earth. But he was also connecting God over here on this chair with man over here on this chair. Jesus was uniquely qualified to bring these two parties together. Jesus was the only person who has ever lived who could have brought these two parties together because on the one hand, he really was God. The Bible says Jesus was as much God as God the Father is God. Jesus was as much God as God the Holy Spirit is God. But on the other hand, Jesus of Nazareth is a fact of history. Jesus of Nazareth was a real, he was fully man, he was a real human being. So as 
Jesus hung there on the cross, connecting heaven and earth, God and man, as he reached the end of his life, and he realized by taking the death penalty, he was solving our problem. Yes, he did feel a sense of satisfaction. From the cross, he did feel a sense of job done, a sense of mission accomplished. And so at the very end of his life, as he built the bridge, he actually cried out quite loudly from the cross, it is finished, job done. He just built the bridge. He made a way whereby any one of us, if we want to, can come back across the bridge and we can be reunited back in the arms of our loving Heavenly Father and we can have that eternal, lasting sense of peace. And once you have crossed this bridge, there is no need to worry about anything, either in this life or in the next. Once you've crossed this bridge, there's no need to be afraid of anything anymore. Once you've crossed this bridge, once you've got this peace, what a thing it is for you to wake up tomorrow morning and every morning for the rest of your life knowing it doesn't matter what comes against me today. I know God loves me. God has got a good plan for my life. I've got peace with God. Once you've crossed this bridge, once you've got this peace, I don't know, maybe next week you're standing at a freezing bus stop, but you know in your heart, I've got peace with God. And if you are not sure that you have got this peace, you can have it. The whole reason why Christ came into the world is so that you can have this peace. Now, of course, like many people, when I heard this message I had a whole host of questions because, well, I'm a naturally skeptical person. But I can honestly say that I have followed the evidence where it led. And coming to know Christ, for me, has not been boring. Coming to know Christ has been the single most exciting element in my life. I can remember the first time that out loud I ever said my name in this verse. Now, I'll read this verse again. And as I say my name, if you like, you can think yours. That God so loved Adrian Holloway that he gave his only son. So that if Adrian Holloway believes in him, Adrian Holloway won't perish. No, Adrian Holloway will have eternal life. Folks, for me, discovering that there really is a loving God. That has been the single most thrilling discovery of my life. So one of the things that I do now is that I help to run Alpha courses. So let me finish by recommending Alpha as a possible next step for you if you are interested. Folks, the man who uh, developed the Alpha Course today is a 63-year-old vicar uh, in the Church of England. He was a bit surprised to be interviewed in the vicarage by Cosmopolitan magazine. Now, when they arrived at the vicarage for the photo shoot, understandably, he said words to the effect of, you Cosmo, me vicar, why you come to me? And this is what the interviewer from Cosmopolitan replied. The type of people who read Cosmopolitan are the sort of people who tend to have everything, and yet they feel that there's something missing. They have some kind of spiritual 
hunger. And so many of our readers have had that hunger satisfied by going on an alpha course. Now, I've led 35 alpha courses. What is interesting to me about alpha is how it appeals to such a broad cross-section, such a broad spectrum of different sorts and types of people. Just under 2 million people in Britain have been on the Alpha course. Alpha is unique in that it is recommended by all the different Christian denominations, so there is nothing strange or weird about it. The talks touch on all the big questions of life. Now, if you were to attend the whole of this upcoming Alpha course that starts in nine days' time, if you add up all those evenings together, you would be spending a total of about 20 hours of your life looking into the claims of the most famous man who has ever lived, the person who's had the greatest impact on the history of our world of anyone who's ever lived. And I think everyone in this room would all agree, hey, if I live to be 90 years old, looking back, spending 20 hours of my life looking at the claims of the most famous man who ever lived, that would probably be time well spent irrespective of what conclusion we come to about the claims of Christ. But as I finish now, I'm just going to sit down in this chair here. As I sit down, I'm not asking you to do the whole of the Alpha course, but I am asking whether you would consider right now just coming back for week one on a one-off, standalone, one-off basis, no strings attached. Because if you come and see what you think of Alpha, if you come to week one, and then you decide, thanks very much, I don't want to carry on. That is only one evening of your life. I am bound to say that there are thousands of people who are so glad that they did try Alpha. My wife, Julia, and I personally know of hundreds of people who we could invite to Ipswich, we could give them a microphone, friends of ours, and they would all say, looking back now, with the benefit of hindsight, hindsight's a wonderful thing, looking back now, they'd say... Yes, the decision to do week one of Alpha turned out to be the single best decision that I've ever made. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.